All right, welcome everyone. It's wonderful to see people coming in, and you, I, I sense there's a buzz today. There really is. Last week it was rainy, and we we lost quite a few of you. <laughs> but we have a buzz going tonight. I can feel it. everybody's coming in, happy to see each other. That's great. It's wonderful to be the church together. Um, so let's go ahead and, and start up here, uh, ladies. Why don't we start with your table? Number one. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Oh, y'all got to do it? <laughs> Don't have too much fun over there. Uh, well, there was some argument about whether everybody does see conflicts between science and faith, so we weren't thinking that everybody actually... There you go. You're going to fight the question and not the purpose. That's perfect. Okay, so not everybody does. I just said, why do you think people? I didn't say everyone. Some people, maybe. Anyway, what do you think? Some people. What's the problem out there? Because scientific start with different assumptions and end up at different Good. All right. I like the way you're thinking there. We're, we're learning this presuppositional idea going. We're always looking for. So, what would be the assumptions? What What is the assumption? Do you think y'all think that that results in seeing faith in uh, science and conflict? What What are the assumption or, or assumptions? Okay, so can you explain that a little bit? Or, um, it, or your group or whoever? Well, if faith is like believing in what you cannot see in science, I see. Evidence based medicine, then like. So one is evidentialist based, one is faith based, you would, is what your point is. Is that what you're saying there? Yes. Okay. All right, Maybe. good. Thank you. What about you guys? Sorry. What do you think well, are the yeah, issues? Yeah. Why do you think people see a conflict between science and faith? Almost male tail. <laughs> I, I think we more or less said the same thing. Um, that people see, you know, science as, you know, I am going to observe what I can observe and therefore arrive at the truth. And by not arriving at, you know, miracles can happen like they happen in the Bible, then the Bible must be, you know, not true. Okay. If they arrive, arrive at conclusions that are, yeah. you know, outside of the possibility of the existence of a God, then, you know, well, I, I figured this out because science mm -hmm. is sort of the right. argument. Okay, good. So again, it, we're getting really back to that first, our first, uh, our second, our second study, aren't we? The whole issue of revelation. General revelation, special revelation, and those kind—that whole apologetic stuff—that was a very important lesson related to this question, I think. And you're—I'm encouraged that you're all sort of engaging that a little bit here. What are you guys thinking? What, what's the issue between faith and science with some people? Well, further thing to add there? Yeah. Well, aside from what was just said, you know, namely science measures things and faith asks much different questions. Um, we also discussed how, uh, you know, maybe it's non-scientists who see the conflict between science and faith because of things like the, you know, the Scopes monkey tri uh, trials and uh, other very high-profile controversies 
within the church, Galileo and the, and the Catholic Church. So talk to me about those, those high-profile cases and why, they, why did they, uh, why do you believe that they put such a dent or a, why do they have that acidic effect upon faith? Well, what is it about them, do you think? Well, I think people generally, I uh, would say, I guess the, to overstate it, people revere, revere science mm -hmm. because of all the things that it's been able to accomplish. And if they do see a scientist, you know, fairly vocally come out against faith, then they listen. And so most of the perception is in this, these people who aren't scientists and maybe don't have faith either who see the conflict mm -hmm. and, you know, because of their respect for science, you know, mm -hmm. deny faith. Any other thoughts about this? Anybody want to pipe in? Yeah. I have uh, <clears throat> some input from Cody viewing. He says, Christians have mistaken the genre of the creation story and have created a gulf between science and faith because they try to claim the Bible's talking about the how of creation rather than the purpose and the what God's doing in creation. Good. Yeah, I think we heard that a little bit somewhere over there. Thank you, Cody. Good to see you. Kind of see you, Betty. <laughs> yes. Any other thoughts out there? Yeah. There's another... Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's interesting that the Templeton Award hmm. is given out every year hmm. to either someone who's theologically oriented or scientifically oriented, who, and pretty oftentimes, I mean, there's some top scientists that are awarded the Templeton Award because they acknowledge as they get older right. that there's lots of mysteries they don't understand right. and that the differences between what they've been thinking about and writing about for all these years is perhaps not inconsistent with faith yeah, and, yeah. and a belief in God. Yeah, isn't that great? There really is. I, I, didn't, I have a whole other thing here. Many of you know, many years ago, we did a, uh, uh, a week, a, a whole, what do we call it, a consortium or something on faith and science. We had about seven panelists. Remember that? Does anybody hear when we did that? And, and then we had some interviewing with that, and then we brought in uh, the genetics, what's his name? Uh, Fritz, not Fritz Schaefer, but uh, Francis, what, what's his name? Anyway, but, but it was around that time that, that you gave me that book by Hogan, Horgan? Horton. Horgan, the, the End of Science. How do you that say book, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating trend either. I think as we move into postmodernity, you hear more and more scientists beginning to uh, speak of the, the limitations of science, you know, and the fact that science, the more that science is discovering and learning and knowing, the more it becomes apparent that we that there's just an infinite, you, you know, how much more do we have to know and how limited it is in terms of what it can accomplish, uh, as much as it can accomplish. So there's a reassessment going there. And so there was a great article uh, coming out of the, uh, it was just, I think, U.S. News or something, but it was, it, it was entitled The Warming Trend Between Faith and Science. And it gets to your point there uh, about more and more you're seeing. The irony is, let me just tell you anecdotally, you know, we've been, I've been in this church now for 25 years. By far, if you were to evaluate the people who walk into this church within the academic community of the university, by far more scientists walk into this church than humanities. By far. And that really speaks volumes about something, you know, in that uh, I think that if you think about the guy, you guys were talking about presuppositions, and I think Cody was speaking to that as well. I mean, 
it's it's this idea of the enlightenment again and and how we we know what we know epistemology so i i like what you were talking about and i do think you're right we're not going to do it right now but but i do think you're right a lot of this has to do with your epistemology how do we know what we know but what i was trying to get at to my question to you fred was how much where has the church erred in this faith science thing? And I'm thinking of the Scopes child. I'm thinking of some of these other instances. Has the church been complicit in this? Yeah, absolutely. And how? Talk to me about that. Who, who said absolutely? I did. Go uh, for it's, it. It's become this reactionary thing where we see something like the theory of evolution or yeah. the Scopes monkey trial or just about anything that comes up in the scientific realm is something that kind of challenges our faith yeah. as something that's a threat to our faith. Exactly. And so we have to be... So so where the church goes wrong is they react against it and try to um, explain why the new scientific theory is wrong versus trying to figure out a way where this new scientific theory that actually may hold some water, how can that coexist with faith and not in a way that's oh we're under fire and we yeah. have to defend ourselves yeah. because we will die very good thank you Trevor I, I, just on the top of my head I wasn't prepared to do this right now but but there are some amazing um, problems that we need to, to be honest about on the church side is not just and and so think about how we talked about in our discussion about three or four weeks ago we talked about revelation remember that general revelation special revelation there's the Redemptive, uh, biblical, supernatural base revelation um, that, of course, is Scripture and Jesus Christ and, and enlightenment by the Holy Spirit being born again. All of that aspect of revelation, you know, we call special. Remember that? Then there's general revelation, and then the way that Hodge described it, we're going to read him again today about creation. There's the general revelation, which is creation based revelation. Now, think about. One of the problems that you've seen in the Scopes trial and these other instances where either side, and you can blame both sides almost equally, but Christians to me have more, uh, I mean, we should know better if we're reading our Bible. We should not have been doing what many of the world did. But why, what is the assumption? Why would you pit special revelation against general revelation? Why would the church do that? Why would it bias interpreting scripture over interpreting nature? Because what we said was that both nature and scripture are infallible. I mean, nature is infallible. But the people who read nature and the people who read the Bible, are they infallible? No. And so there should be, what we, one of the reasons I think you point out beautifully, Trevor, is the lack of humility. The lack of humility on both sides. Whereas, and again, I'm saying the church should have known better. I'm, I'm not quite as, as ready to let the church off the bank a little bit. The humility to understand that both of us are reading a different book. Both of us are fallible readers, and the books are infallible, which would therefore presuppose that we would want to be humble to hear our scientist friends and say, ah, you've exposed something that might help me read my Bible better. That maybe the world is round, and how would that help me understand my Bible and how to read it? Instead of politicize it, and that's your second point, both of, all of these instances that you talked about, Fred, they became politicized. And in a politicized environment, what's going to happen, do you think? 
What's going to happen to the rhetoric? It's going to become inflation. Yeah, I can't hear. Ratchet it up. Ratchet it up. And so things like slippery slope fallacy creeps in. You know, if you even get close to reading the Bible anyway but literally, said one side, you're a heretic. Now, all the way back to Augustine and before, even back to Paul, even back to, you can see the scripture reading the Old Testament, no one has ever read the Bible, quote, literally. In any Orthodox tradition. Now you can say, whoa, press what do you mean? What I mean is they, they, they have always read it literarily. When what I mean by that is each genre, each context, stories, narratives, apocalyptic literature, poetry, you read it as poetry, you read it as history, you read it as, as uh, an epistolatory, you read it in a certain way which tells you how to read it. So, that, so there was a huge problem, this literary, but see, why did that happen? And then when, what, is, what, is that, what does that do to the world? Literal? Really? Literal? The sun moves and, and the sun is moving around here? You know, the sun's moving around us? Is that what you, you got going here? Literal? There's no anthropomorphic uh, language in the Bible that is viewing the world as man sees it? We can't, we can't read that literally, you mean? No, we can't. Because it's an anthropomorphism. And so... Yeah, I think there's a huge issue why faith and science, but it really comes down to pride on both sides. A, a lack of humility to recognize that we have two books of revelation from God, both equally infallible, both fallibly read, therefore a, more of a what I think we should have, and what we do see a little bit, is a warming trend. <clears throat> but the other thing that you're going to see, Fred, about that is when you start reading the Bible in a politicized environment, not only is the rhetoric ratcheted up and slippery slope arguments and guilty by association and blah, 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 blah. But the other thing that starts to happen is what? When it's politicized. Error. Hmm? Error. Yes, error. We st and let me, let me play that out. If it's a politicized situation, we start reading our Bible for the sake of the argument politically. And we start importing questions or importing agendas. I mean, really? Do you think, let's just go ahead and take the most conservative view I know of, of, of the Bible and how it was written. Let's, let's assume for a moment, which I, I do actually, that Moses is the author of Genesis. Now, do you really think Moses was writing this book thinking, you know, I need, I need to explain. I mean, were these people thinking about, now, tell me exactly how did God do this? Or do you think Moses might have had another agenda? And of course, we're going to discover that today. And so what happens is actually most of the reading of Genesis in this politicized environment is absolutely beside the point of Genesis. It has absolutely nothing to do with what it was written for. And we're imposing upon it questions and issues that Genesis never even in a million years dreamed of. I mean, Genesis is written in the context of the Gilg Gilgamesh epic and the dualism between this idea that there's two, there's these great powers that are evil and that are good and, and there's therefore these dualisms that are going on and he's trying to assert that this God of Israel is not in a dualistic, you know, sort of competition with this other God. That's his apologetic. That's what he's trying to do. He had not have any clue about 
modern post-enlightenment atheism. Nobody was atheist in this, but there was no such thing. The word, the concept didn't even exist. Have you ever thought of that? Can you think of one place in all of the Bible where the anti-God, whatever that would look like, movement was atheist? But there were people saying, there is no God. Can you think of any place like that in the Bible? Have you ever thought about this? I don't know if I'm just kind of blowing your mind, because we just assume, of course there was atheism in the Bible. Really? I don't think there was real atheism. I don't know. Maybe Cody might know, because I know he's taking some stuff on this, but I, I can't think of any time in history where there's been atheism until after the Enlightenment, honestly. The concept, even. No, what's the paradigm? What's the debunking paradigm in the Bible? Anybody know? If you if you got a if there's a heresy, if there's a problem, what what's the what is the way the Bible addresses that problem? Anybody guess? What's the most common way of defining sin? In other words, going after other gods. Good. The problem in the Bible was never atheism; it's idolatry. There was another god. There's a competing god. Paul doesn't go to the Areopagus, the center of intelligentsia, and says, "Behold." You don't believe in God? No, what does he say in, that, in Acts 17? Right now? Behold, you got gods everywhere. And hey, I noticed you have at least one that you haven't found the name of them yet. Well, let me just let me focus on that one for a little bit. You see? It's a very different world. And yet we we brought Scope's trial brought in this this idea of literalism and evolution and what? All right, so that's a we we talked a little bit about that, but that's a good prep. Number two and three, uh, real quickly. What so real quickly? What do you think the, the Princeton professor is saying there? Just let's anybody jump in there. I won't go around to all the tables. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the same for scientists as it is for everyone. Evolution is basically a red herring. What's a red herring? What, what do we mean by that? Distraction from the distraction. Argument. Good. So how would evolution be considered as a as a as a distraction from this Christian scientist, do you think? The problem is one of sin for everybody. Good, good. Um, so this evolution isn't going to answer that yeah. one way or the other, whether you believe that. Exactly. And does even evolution address the question, is, is there a God? Does evolution, let's just assume you take it hook, line, and sinker. The, all the, 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 the evolutionary theory. Is there anything inherent about the evolutionary theory that is atheist? Inherent? Inherent to it. Could you be a theistic evolutionist? Yeah. You could. Yeah. There's nothing about evolution at all. Ignores God. But you can be a happier atheist. Yes. <laughs> because you now have a basis to... You're, you're, well, I'll tell you where it really starts to come out, though. Again, this is what Hawking said. He says he's more intellectually satisfied yeah. now that, that that's fine. But 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 still, I, I think it's a red herring because he evolution hasn't disproved God at all, and he, and I could be a strong, devout Christian and think that there was an evolutionary process. In fact, today I'd say most Christians I know that are scientists believe in the evolutionary theory, but. We're going to go back to that in a minute. We're going to go back to that in a minute. But not the faith assumption that tags to it that there is therefore a what? A, a, a unguided evolution. You see? And so that's the key. So that's what he said. That's what he was saying here. That basically, look, 
we can debate evolution, but guys, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a theologian and a biblical scholar, hopefully. I'm not a scientist, and evolution is about natural science, and I don't think the Bible speaks to it. Except insofar as there is a faith tagged onto it, a leap of faith, a naturalist leap of faith that therefore would say things like, there is no God, therefore. Or, there is no historical Adam, therefore. Why? You can have a historical Adam within evolution. Now, I'm not going to take a person position on this. I, I'm, again, I'm going to be an atheist when it comes to evolution or agnostic. I don't know. But from my position as a pastor, I have my own ideas. But as a pastor, as a church, this is what I'm talking about. Why is the church taking a position on this? When there's nothing in the Bible that refutes it, and there's nothing in the Bible, I should say necessarily, that refutes it, and there's nothing in the Bible that necessarily supports it. Why is this becoming an issue for us? Now, it is an issue for us if the, if the evolutionist tags onto it. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And there is a problem with my church when the church goes to the Genesis and says necessarily that Genesis teaches against evolution. And we're going we're gonna to look at that very carefully today. We're going to have some fun. You ready for that? We're going to look at Genesis and see what happens there. I think by the end of the day, if you're skeptical right now, you're going to go, wow, I never saw that. So we're going to go there. Finally, did anyone crack the code? The, the four quit, uh, the TSLs, little giddy. Anybody crack it? I heard, I heard a lot of going on. And it's hard, isn't it? And I can't say for sure that I've cracked it, but what do you think's going on there? What did you say? I heard you over there, Cammie, saying something that I thought might be getting well, close to it. I didn't think it was right, but that ultimately, like, there's creation, and the creation doesn't change. And it's glorifying God, whether we know it or not. And if we, it's kind of like the, the idea of the gospel is like the gospel stays the same, creation stays the same, and you can go through this long, long process of learning about this gospel, but on the other side, the gospel and creation are still the same. Regardless of how much you learn about it, it has been and always will be there. Good. I like, you, you saw the circular activity here. This, that we begin, we kind of end where we began somehow. Anybody else have a thought about that? What do you what, what does this relate to, do you think? Well, I I I read it as a poetic um, description of science, how God created the world to mm -hmm. be explored and scientifically, mm -hmm. and we go out and we you know look at things quote unquote apart from God, but in the end we end up discovering I think that's right. See, I think they're both right. I mean there's a we begin with God, love and, and, and hope and salvation. There's a calling. And the calling is to explore and to, to, to in some ways to discover who God is. And off we go. And with all of this work and all this exploration, we will come back to creation. In the beginning just as in the end. The alpha, I see the alpha and omega being played here. That it is in the beginning as it is in the end. God. God. You see, and that's, that's really cool. Um, and it does kind of speak to that. Well, let's, uh, let's open in prayer and then we're going to get into this. And I hope you're, you're really hungry because we have some fun stuff to do here. Father, I do pray that you will meet with us. Thank you so much for, for these blessed uh, saints of your church and you brought them righteous in Christ by faith alone. And now we ask that you would sanctify us. Sanctify not only 
us behaviorally, but sanctify us that we would think thoughts that are true and good about you, about your works of creation, especially its purpose, which is to glorify you. And we pray, Father, that, that, that by a virtue of this lesson today, that you would enable us to come full circle, as this wonderful poetry uh, suggests, that we would begin and we would end with worshiping you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so Nehemiah says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of the heavens worship you. I mean, we can just stop right there. That is the purpose of what we want to do tonight, and it's the purpose of creation. What do, you, what do you notice about that passage, real briefly, that sticks out at you? This is an awesome passage. Anything stick out? Anything just catch your attention? I think that God's not only just placing things <coughs> and bringing them into existence, um, but I think he's fully um, participating and fully um, engaging all the things of the earth, all the things of the sea. He's, you know, the, the thing that sticks out to me when he says, he basically says, like, you know, you made the earth, you, even the highest heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all is in it, and the seas and all is in it. So he's saying, you made all these things, and then you give life to all these things. So yeah. there's two, in my mind, I see two different things going on there. He's making these things to place them, and then he's giving them life and sustaining them. Okay, good. And then the response is, is to turn back and worship God. Yeah. So what's the purpose of creation? Duh. To glorify God. To, worship, to, to glorify God. To enable us to see and worship Him. What, 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 what in this passage... Uh, gives you that sense of gravitas. It's There is only one Lord on the one hand, notice. There's only one. You alone. You alone are the Lord. That's really important. Notice the, this, this hyperbole going on. You alone are the Lord and everything else is your creation. Everything. You one Lord in which everything owes its existence. A real strong statement which therefore means there is no other to worship. We worship you. Here's the way our confession says it. Would someone read it? This is, our, this is now reading the Bible with our church uh, communally. That's how we read the Bible. We're, we're not so arrogant to think that we're the first people who've been reading it. So how does our, uh, how's Westminster 350 years ago tagging on to the tradition that's been going on for 2,000 years? What is, what is it that we believe as a church? Would somebody read that? God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein whether visible or invisible in the space of six days and all was very good. So what about this of nothing? Hmm? So that, that's the incredible part of this. It is the creation part of it. By speaking the word and there's absolutely nothing that, that, that compares to that statement. Mm -hmm. 
is there? I mean, there is no concept in our brain. That's just, there's nothing we've ever done. I mean, you, you guys know, you scientists, you, you cooks know this. Is there ever a time in all of history where out of nothing came something? There isn't. I mean, we always are working with pre, with, with pre-prepared stuff. And um, so, yeah, that is, of course, the ultimate claim of, of the Bible. That in the beginning, tahu bahu. Hebrew for nothing and, and, and chaos. Now, we're going to look at those words. And to a degree, they're meant to be cosmological and they're meant there to be a redemptive concept. But, we're, but that, that being said, um, there's no doubt that we, in the beginning, God. And that blows our brain. I mean, you mean all of it? I mean, he, is he just talking about the earth here? I don't think so. I mean, he's talking everything. So all this great stuff I've been talking about, about is going to National Geographic. I was watching it again last night. I just love this stuff. I told you I was, wouldn't be a scientist back in the day. And so I just got attracted to it. But just it just blows your mind when you start thinking about the expanse of the galaxies and the other galaxies and the other galaxies and the other galaxies. I mean, it just thing goes on and on and on. And... And God, I don't know. I mean, this is just this is such a leap for us. This is an incredible, ridiculous, irrational leap. If, I mean, I'm trying to make you a little bit atheistic here, so you can rediscover the wonder of this. This is the stupidest, most ridiculous statement you've ever read in your life. I love this phrase, whether visible or invisible. Just mm-hmm. imagine how prescient these people were when they were writing this. Mm-hmm. Not knowing that a hundred years, two hundred years, four hundred years later, that we have electron microscopes, mm, we have a mm, Hubble telescope, mm, seeing mm. things that they had no idea even existed, they mm. could not see at that time. Mm. Yeah, yeah, all of it, all of it's been yeah. created. So not only was it made from nothing, but we can't get rid of anything either. <laughs> we can't. Sure. We shoot these things, uh, satellites out in outer space, and put things on Mars and so forth, and some of them. Come right back. We can't. We can't get rid of stuff. (laughs) Come look at my closet. Oh, that's true. (laughs) Getting back to it, though, there is a significance here about how God is defined. How do we see God defined in creation? Needing absolutely nothing. Well, that's true, but that's not what's point here. What What does it see here? What does the phrase say? How is God defined? Trinity. And that's important. Um, now, they're, they're basing that on what they see in Genesis. They see the Trinity there. And we're going to look at that. But that's also very important because you're already beginning to get... You're, I mean, almost universally, the churches believe that when we start speaking of the Trinity, you're speaking in, in redemptive... I mean, we, we discern the Trinity through the salvation story. Christ is the Son, the Word that becomes flesh, right? We would not know Christ except for the story of redemption. The Holy Spirit is, is in the manifest. We know the Holy Spirit through our redemption. We know the Father through our redemption. You think of the doxology, the great and famous doxology in Ephesians chapter 1. And I won't take the time to read it now. We've already looked at the Trinity doctrine a couple of weeks ago. And remember, one of the things we said is that, that, that how closely linked to the salvation story is the doctrine of salvation that we? It's not that 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 the salvation story makes the Trinity. <laughs> we certainly don't mean that. What we mean is that 
the Trinity in its activity and its its revelation is vis-a-vis the redemptive story. So, so creation. I mean, I'm I'm obviously trying to set you up a little bit to start thinking about creation maybe in a non-enlightenment cosmological way, because the early writers of the Bible were not probably thinking about modern science and. Here is a, while there is a doctrine of cosmology in the Bible, I don't know for, it, I'm hard-pressed to think that Moses is sitting there thinking, I've got to come up with some, some good, uh, I want the Bible to speak to the issue of modern science and the questions that is modern science. And it's not that it's not, it's not relevant to modern science, it is. But we have to be careful how we make it relevant. So, but out of nothing, you just have to stop. I mean, does anybody have Hodge? Lisa, do you have my, I know you have my Hodge. That uh, page 81, number four. Would you mind reading that? Okay. Just a nice kind of meditation about this concept. If God be not the creator of substance, ex, 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 ex nihilo, yeah. out of nothing, that, yeah. as well as the former worlds and of things, he cannot be absolutely sovereign in his degrees or in his works of creation, providence, or grace. On every hand, he would be limited and conditioned by the self-existent qualities of pre-existent substance and their endless consequences. But the scriptures always represent God as the absolute sovereign and the proprietor of all things. All right, here we go again. What did I promise you at the beginning of the the study? That every lesson would be ultimately an exclamation or an explication of what we've already learned about the doctrine of God. Do you see how amazing that, that this is? Because out of nothing is the very basis of, 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 of how we know God's sovereignty. Because again, it would be, if, if somehow there was a pre-existent anything to God, or even if there was a co-existent anything to God, there would be no sovereignty. It would be an impossibility. There would be no lordship. So when people are talking about creation and this idea of ex nihilo, out of nothing, it's crucial to understand that we're not just talking about cosmology here. We're talking about, is there a God? A true and living God? Because by definition, God is sovereign. God is you know, this immutable, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent being that has no beginning or end. And he is, he is compared to none. He, there is none other but one Lord, as in Nehemiah's statement. There's only one of these beings we call God. And that's, the, that's what's at stake here. So don't underestimate whatever you're doing in this, this creation science stuff, whatever you're talking about, um, at the very heart and soul of the doctrine of creation in Scripture is ex nihilo creation. That God, pre-existing from all eternity, made into existence that which previously did not exist, and that establishes him as Lord. And you're going to see that is exactly the point that Moses is trying to make against dualism. It's exactly the point he's trying to make. That this God that wants to enter into a contract with you we call it a covenant, is the none other, not one of these little gods that you're talking about, that we make with our hands. <laughs> this is none other than the Lord 
the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Sovereign. You want to be on his good side. <laughs> A.K.A. So, very good. That's the first point. Second point, visible or invisible. You mentioned that, Jim, uh, uh, and I think that's an interesting interpretation. I think it certainly could, it's certainly true. I think probably there, they, of course, had an idea of the spirit world. And clearly what's going on here is this idea that don't, 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 don't somehow see. And by the way, what does that do to all this, uh, well, you know, left behind sort of dualism where there's this great, powerful, evil Satan over here, Lucifer. And you almost get to, you know, some of these stories, you almost get the sense that there's a big battle and, you know, God is sweating it out over there. You know, no, man, God made Lucifer. He made him. He owns them. He's not even in the competition. You can't even think like that. You know? And so that's very important, you know? Uh, this was a, you know, when I first became a Christian, I think I've told you this, but, uh, well, I'll just tell you the, you know, the story. I mean, this is, one, I had a couple of significant events, you know, and, and I could go you through it, but somewhere around 16, maybe, I think it was, I was, it, it, an event happened to me that started me reading the Bible. And that event, well, I don't even know if I told you. I think, tell me if I told you this. I can't remember. So a bunch of friends of mine went out and got stoned, and we went to the 12 o'clock Exodus. 12 o'clock. Exodus. I mean, uh, no, exorcism. Yeah, what is it called? Uh, exorcist. Exorcist. Yes, thank you. Exorcist. <laughs> Have you of y'all seen that movie? You don't want to see it. <laughs> you saw it, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, try seeing that stoned off your head. I mean, just try seeing that when you're just absolutely stoned crazy. Okay, I was stoned crazy, and I went to bed that night. And to this day, I'm still not sure what was going on. But I swear to you, I thought I was levitating. I thought I was, you know, floating. And I really always had a very high view of God. I don't think I ever can remember a time when I didn't believe in God and wasn't really... I mean, even before I was a Christian, before this, whenever uh, Sweet Home Alabama would come on, I lived in the South, you know, it came on a lot. And when it came on and there's this GD state, man, I would turn the radio off. I was doing that before I even, you know, I'm, I'd be high as a kite and I'd be doing that. There's just something about it. I couldn't hear it. So I'm sitting in the bed and I wake up, I don't know, three in the morning and I'm sweating blood and I'm thinking I'm demon possessed. And I'm just crying out to God. Oh, man. Oh, God, help me, save me, blah, 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 blah. I was scared off my rock. Now, maybe it was a hallucination, I don't know. But all I know is that I got this little red Bible that I've been given at Vacation Bible School, because that's about the only time I've gone to church, and I took it in a lot, and I, haven't, I still have that little Bible, and I started reading it like crazy, and it went on for years, because I knew something, I just was scared to death. The point being is, later when I get saved, I'm still worried about demon possession. I had this sort of inherent fear about this, that could that happen to me? You know, could it happen to you as a Christian now? Now I'm actually starting to get into my ministry. So, and this was a really incredible concept for me, to acknowledge that it's an impossibility. There is no dualism here. There's no, I'm not a pawn, and God is over here, and Satan's over here, and they're playing kind of war with me. When God conquers me, vis-a-vis -vis the Holy Spirit that gives me new life and faith to embrace Christ, Satan is powerless. We can mock him. We can spit on him. We take him seriously because he's a tempter, but he's powerless. Why? Because God makes all things, including Lucifer, the fallenness of angels. It's not a war going on in that sense. 
So that's a huge passage for me. I hope for you. And all very good. What do you think the significance of that is? I'm trying to just pull this into our modern day. Now, okay, and all very good, says our church. Now, why is that important to say that? What do you think they say? What do you think they've got in their head? Anybody want to guess? Any movement, theology, philosophy? Sovereignty. Well, there's certainly sovereignty, but why all the creation being all very good? He didn't create evil. Didn't create evil. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I don't think that's what they were targeting here, but though I think that's true. Creation is all very good. Flesh. Oh. Tangible. What? Gnosticism. Good. Yeah. There's 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 throughout the whole history of the Bible, all the way back to the ancient uh, Israel, there was there had been this it's often described as paganism, but there's been this view that the problem in the world is our physicality. Ancient Gnosticism was very anti physical. The problem part of our problem is we've got to get out of our body somehow. And so uh, we call it asceticism. And there's other things that you do where we, you know, and so um, there, it, there's all sorts of, you know, some of the religious rites would be to beat the body and to abuse the body and to slice it and to cut it and do all these sorts of things because the, they hated the body. They hated nature because God is a spirit and I'm a spirit and the, and the reason that I'm wrong, quad Gnosticism, is that and I can't remember the way to tell the whole story. I, I used to could have told it. It's in a paper I've written. But this, I, there's this thing that happened, and I can't remember all the story. But basically, we 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 got a body, and when we got a body, that was the that was the end because now we have sensory temptations, and you know, and you can see the heresy forming, right? I mean, where does temptation begin according to James? With desires. How do desires form? I see things, I touch things, I smell things, right? So you can appreciate it just at the moment that, okay, but, you know, whatever you, whatever you believe according to the biblical worldview, we are not Gnostic, we're not Platonic. We think the body matters. By the way, this is a huge approach uh, to the issue of sexuality. You know, I read a wonderful article once of a mother writing her daughter, and, um, and she's basically trying to explain to her, a mother who had been very active sexually in college and very active sexually for most of her life. And she was writing her daughter and, you know, and, and describing to her why, what she learned from that. And she made this, I, I mean, it's not nearly as poetic as she says, because I'm doing this on top on my head. But basically the, the gist of what she said was, I discovered that my body was connected to my soul. That when you touch my skin, this is what she said, when you touch my skin, you touch my soul. Now, that's a very high view of, of creation. That your body does matter. To let your body touch something matters. Because your person is touching it. And so that's, there's a whole lot of stuff here that, that, it comes, that comes under this and we don't have time to do now. But if you're, a neo, if you're sort of this Neoplatonic Christian which does exist, there's this idea that the body, that the materiality is somehow bad. And it's all about spirit. Um, you know, I think we were talking about recently because of your situation, but, but when, you know, I remember, you know, so someone dies, 
And what do we think now of the body? Well, the Neoplatonic attitude, which the church doesn't have, treats the body as just a bunch of dirt now. Which, it's not important. That's not, that, that's not really the person. Really? That body is sacred. It's going to be raised up. That's how much God loved that body. He's going to give it a new life. He's going to give it new breath and raise that same body, says Paul, the same body. So you're stuck with it, guys. Thank God it's going to be glorified. That means made right. i got a lot of correcting to do, or God does. But yeah, so any questions about what we're saying so far? Anything we've said so far before we move on here? Any, any thoughts? These are just some very basic Christian doctrines that I just flew through real quick. Just out of nothing, ex nihilo, both visible and invisible, all very good. There, we, we, are, we are big on creation, big on materiality, big on stuff. And, and a true, as, as long as it's used rightly, that's the whole other part. But big on stuff. We, we're fine with stuff. Used to the glory of God. All right, let's move on. Number five. Now, this is that quote that I've been talking about, and it's a beautiful quote um, that kind of gets us started into the science issue. Um, what's, can someone read that? This is by Charles Hodge. Uh, uh, no, A. A. Hodge. Remember, A. A. Hodge is writing before the Scopes trial. Now, wouldn't you wish they had brought this book into that conversation? But here it is. Read it. Somebody. The book of Revelation and the book of nature are both from God and will be found when both are adequately interpreted to coincide perfectly. The one, Revelation in the Bible, was designed and is admirably adapted to lay the foundation of an intelligent faith in Jehovah as the absolute creator and the immediate former and providential ruler of all things. But it was not designed either to prevent or take the place of scientific interpretation of all existing phenomena and of all traces of the past history of the world which God allows men to discover. Apparent discrepancies in established truths can have their ground only in perfect knowledge. God requires us both to believe and to learn. He imposes upon us at present the necessity of humility and patience. Just think about the profundity of that. We, we have this notion that, that um, I don't know, that we're somehow enlightened today, and, and this is a pre- Scopes, theologian that is as orthodox as they get. I mean, this guy's old school theologian here. We're not talking about any kind of liberal anything in this guy. And you're going to see some other quotes in a minute. Uh, I think the significance is obvious. Again, I've already spoken to it, so I'm not going to repeat what I already said. Just back to what we said earlier. But here's a little thing for you to know. Mark Knoll um, is, is writing on Princeton theologi theologians. And there's a section in his book where he's talking about, and again, again this is pre-scopes, pre-all this mess that we got into with this faith science controversy. You didn't really see it before that in America. It really wasn't there. Um, and so he's getting at this. Let me just read it. It's a nice little historical to show you that when, when Darwinism came out, there were reactions within the conservative, within the orthodox tradition that was, you know, how do we respond to this? And listen to what was happening here. I think it's helpful. I'll just go ahead and read it for us. Hodge and Warfield reached, uh, by the way, just one more thing. Do anybody know who Warfield, B.B. Warfield is? I mean, most people say he is, he's, he championed, if you will, orthodoxy against liberalism. 
I mean, this is the guy that, that wrote a whole book on the inerrancy of Scripture uh, in the 19th, late 19th century. And so you're talking, these are not, I just can't emphasize, these are like these stalwarts of, of orthodox, conservative, you know, evangelical faith. And so here he goes, Hodge, and so was Hodge. And he's talking about not, not A.A. Hodge, the one we just wrote. A.A. Hodge was the son of Charles Hodge, and that's who he's talking about. Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield reached contrasting conclusions on the question of cosmology. Hodge thought that Charles, Charles Darwin's formulation of evolution was tantamount to atheism. Sound familiar? Warfield held that a comprehensive formulation of evolution could be reconciled with an orthodox Christian faith based on an inerrant Bible. Yet these differing conclusions are not as important as the goal. Both the mentality, the tradition, the substantial intellectual convictions, and the view of the role of theology in America, civilization that the two shared. The common goal, we believe, about theology was to preserve the harmony of truth. Hodge and Warfield refused to, to countenance and permanent antagonism against the two of the fundamental realms of knowledge. What humans, by God's grace, can discover about the natural world, which owes its origin to God, and what they can learn again by grace about the character and acts of God from special relation in the Bible, he's saying, are to be harmonized. And see, this is exactly what we're wanting to start our conversation about faith and science regarding. That we're looking for harmony here. Again, we've talked a lot about this. You know, why? Because there's two books of Revelation. They're both infallible. And we need to be all humble as we read both books. And let each book help us understand the other book. That's the position I'm trying to take here. I see what Fred's doing over there, or what Jim's doing, or any of the other scientists here, as, as studying a sacred book. And there can be conclusions that are derived from that study they're going to help me know God and help me understand even when I read Scripture. Now, we got to, they, they're, they're a nice, uh, you know, they will be in tension sometimes, these interpretations. And there's the humility to go and say, okay, let's revisit both. Let's revisit. Because the Christian's assumption, like Warfield and Hodge, even though they came out of different ways, is that there should be harmony. That you're not talking about some... You're not talking about one revelation that's superior to another. So when, when Christians say to me, and I know this is going to bother somebody, well, what, what is the, the highest form of revelation? I'm going to say they're equal. Creation is as much a revelation from God as the Bible is a revelation from God. The scientists are going to say, oh, our revelation is superior. You know, it, we can put it in test tubes and we can test it and we can do all this kind of stuff. The Christian's going to say, oh, no, our revelation is superior. You know, and off we go. And we're and if you're a biblical Christian, if you're a Christian that would have been the Christian before the modernist sort of controversies, you would have just innately said these are both equally revelatory events of God, both equally true, and therefore we need to read them both with humility. And yet we're not going to necessarily say that the readers are right in their interpretation of either. And that's why we got to talk about. It. And so if you take that idea, um, the compatibility, in other words, of natural and revealed knowledge, Hodge and Warfield were maintaining a long-standing Christian tradition which affirmed the two books by which God made himself known. So number seven is where we get into the culture wars. And, um, Welcome to the team at Creation Ministries International. Thank you for your support. 
Really? <laughs> Are you bored? <laughs> I was trying to find a good quote. Okay. Preston, yeah. is there a connection between what you were just talking about and God's charge to Adam to take dominion over his creation? Yeah, I mean, if you mean, think about it, he was, uh, he, he was given the dominion that when you name something, you lord it. And he named nomenclature, right. was given humanity to... So, so absolutely, I see the scientist as much as the, uh, you know, the, the pastor, theologian, as is taking dominion, which is bringing kingdom order into our world, utilizing the creation that God has given right. to do and that. Studying that creation, studying that it, but bringing and, and utilizing yeah. it under the lordship of right. God, right. and that's where we're going to go in a minute with Genesis. That was the whole point. So let me just, I'm not going to read this whole number seven because we've already kind of talked about it and I want to make sure we get some stuff here. But, but let me just really, I want to make it really clear. So what I'm going to do here, number eight, is tell you, okay, so you want to be an orthodox Christian. Let me tell you what I think and what we believe, our tradition believes, not just me. What are the non-negotiables? What are things that you're just going to have to say, look, for you to be a Christian, an orthodox Christian, that means the Christian who reads the scripture with the church for 2,000 years. Here is what orthodoxy is, is always believed is essential. Number one, of course, is, uh, is well, first I just kind of give you a definition. That, that the work of the triune God by which he called all things that exist, both material and spiritual, into existence out of non-existence by his own will and for his own glory. Um, it's a significant doctrine. I notice here it's referenced in every part of scripture. It's everywhere. Um, and here's what you need to know. One, it's ex nihilo. We talked about that. Here are some other wonderful passages that, that speak to that. But you just you just can't get rid of that doctrine because you get rid of the sovereignty of God, as we've seen. And it just it's just not true what the Scripture teaches. Number two, we've already seen it. All three persons of the Trinity are present and active in creation. I gave you some scriptures there. <clears throat> Again, would love to have the time to just relish this. I'll, every time I say this, but... You ought to go home and just take some time to read these scriptures devotionally. Forget about the learning and all this academic stuff. Just go home and read some of these scriptures. They're incredible. As they reflect about this doctrine of God as our trinity and his creative role. So don't think of just God the Father creating the world. We see God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Genesis. We see them named throughout scripture, and they're all related. And what's going to happen here, guys, is it's going to define the way we think of salvation. Because if salvation... What, what happened in the fall? We haven't gotten there yet in our theology, but what happens is what? Death. So what's going to have to happen in order for us to be saved? Bring it to life. We have to relife it. We have to be brought back to life. And what you're going to find is that the, the imagery of Genesis and creation, the hovering spirit over the waters, the decree of God, the presence of Jesus Christ by word, all of these things are going to show up in all the salvific events. Even Christ himself. Remember the hovering spirit, the new life, he must be born again, the Holy Spirit. It's all there. So that first creation is the redemptive event, and then the recreation genre begins throughout the scripture, because creation is a central aspect of what we even mean by salvation. And so that's really important. And then thirdly, I would say, uh, we believe that the historicity of Adam and Eve within the unique now here, I want you to, there's a word here that you probably would read over very quickly and not realize it. Covenantal. The historicity of Adam and Eve 
and their uniquely covenantal role of federal headship over creation. Why am I going to say that? Because I'm not saying necessarily, and again, I don't want to get off into the controversies, and there are many. I'm not saying necessarily, but I'm not necessarily saying not either, but I'm not necessarily saying that the way we think of Adam and Eve is as in a genetic beginning. It may be true, it may not be true. I'm not, I'm not sure the scripture necessarily teaches, however, that there could not have been spontaneous creations of humanity um, and that were parallel or alongside of or whatever Adam. I do know, for instance, however, you, 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 got a, you do have a problem by the time you get to Cain. Now, who was Cain, if you're thinking in genealogical terms? You had, remember Adam, Eve, yeah. they begot who? Cain and Abel. And then we have Seth, who replaces Cain. Right? Now, we're, we're talking how many years here? How many generations? You got two. Yeah. Okay? And Cain gets in trouble. Right? God excommunicates him from the temple we call Eden. And Cain's really worried about it. What's he afraid of? The multitudes, the the multitudes of nations. What? Now, uh, whoa! Adam and Eve, you've been busy. Or do we understand blank begat blank begat blank begat blank in covenantal terms that we're following a redemptive historical story? Could there have been many genetic generations between? Even God and Adam and Cain? Maybe. I don't know. Could God have created multiples of humanities all over the place spontaneously so that by the time we get to the second generation, you got nations existing out there? I don't know. Could it be that Cain is speaking more prophetically about a line that would follow him outside of the kingdom of God but all the same with some rights of God's protection and grace because they are made still in the image of God. And therefore it was more of a prophetic statement about the future. I don't know for sure. Clearly that could be true regardless of all the others. You see where I'm going here? Christians, come, we, we need to get out of our Sunday school classes a little bit here. You know, is your God, remember I said it in a sermon, is your God big enough? to get out of the little four walls of a, of a nice contained reading without having to deal with all the realities of the Bible? Because here's a reality. It's a messy reality maybe for some, but it's not for me, as you're going to see in a minute. Because I know that we're not asking questions the Bible's asking. And that's good. It's, it's important to recognize that. It, it doesn't bother my faith. It's a red herring. I don't care. What I know, though, from Scripture is that there is a relationship between a historical act of Adam and the historical act of Jesus. When I think, when I read scripture in Romans talking about Jesus being a second Adam, I'm not saying, I'm not reading that to mean Adam was the great, 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 go back a couple thousand years, or about, I don't know, depending on if it's a young earth, old earth, go back thousands of years, you know, grandson of Adam. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates that's what Paul's point is. What I'm hearing is that Adam was 
was the head of state, to use a modern term. He was the covenant executor of humanity. He was brought in to take the oath, the vow, that would protect and preserve and sustain as the head of the family, as the head of the church, as the head of the state. He and his actions were going to be acted in a federal, that's why I use that word federal, you all know what I mean by that, right? When our president acts, America acted. Because he's our covenant head. He's our national head. Are, are y'all following me on this? It's really important. So here I'm thinking, who is Adam? Well, he is a covenant head. And his actions were the actions of all humanity vis-a-vis federal relationship. Just as Obama, when he acts, America acted. Now, we all voted Adam in office, by the way, because we all follow after him in rebelling against God. So let's don't pick on Adam too hard here. You know, and it could be, in its view, as a curse, it gets called humanity out of Adam. That we follow after him, which has a lot to do with parenting, actually, in the scripture. And so, so you have this amazing statement here, but I want you to be careful, because what I'm saying is, what does it mean to be orthodox? Well, let's... let's Let's don't start pushing stuff into the Bible that the Bible's not saying. Here's, here's the gist of it. Ex nihilo, you know, absolute, universal, all existence, creation out of nothing. You know, the Trinitarian and the historicity of Adam. Any questions so far? Thoughts? Is, are you feeling uncomfortable, some of you? Because a lot of times, depending on your background, this can make you feel a little uncomfortable. You go, whoa, you're blown paradigms here. I thought the Bible was superior to creation. I thought this, you know, off we go. All right. I'm not trying to mock it. So let me, let me look at this little statement here. Um, now I'm going down to uh, at nine. So what do we know about the, uh, the issue of creation and evolution? What exactly is the debate anyway? Um, is it really a debate between pure science and faith? And I, re- and I use that word pure science. Evolution and creation or something else. I'm just going to read this. It's just it's the easiest way to do it. The issue of knowledge and the scientific method is one way of knowing, do we presume a priori that empirically verifiable knowledge is the only way to know? I think that's what you guys were talking about, Janet, right? This assumptions here. Is that really the only way we know what we know? That we can put it in a test tube? And we can have verifiable, reproducible kinds of, you know, you know the rules of, of natural science. As one way of knowing, you know. See, that, that, that notion is what, I, what some people call nothing buttery scientism. That's not pure science. That's science leaping in faith to tell you that the only way you can know something is the way we tell you to know it. And that's what Descartes did. That was the Cartesian revolution that that we can't know anything until we start with what we can know irre- irrefutably. I can, and that's, I know me. The birth of humanism, the birth of modern science. And modern science not being a pure science anymore, in my mind, if you mean by that, that they say this. So, so here's, so what constitutes a fact? Today, when we hear that, when I say, well, that's a fact, think about how far we've come since the Enlightenment. I would say universally, if I were to say it's a fact, God exists. I would say almost universally, even among Christians, well, that's not a fact. That's what? 
That's an opinion. Or assumption. Assumption. Or theory. Theory. Or myth. Myth. Good. Or faith. Or belief. Or value. <laughs> that is ludicrous. If you think how, how arrogant is that? Because what's underneath it? It's not that we can know things by empiricism. It's not, there's nothing wrong with, with being told that one way to know something is by <coughs> empirical data and evidentialist methodology. We're fine with that. But to be told, really, that the only way you can know anything is by empirically verifiable data, that is a leap of faith. That's not pure science. And so listen to what uh, Leslie Newbigin says. Science acknowledges no objective world of values in the light of which human purpose could be judged right or wrong. Man is left under the control of whichever is the strongest impulse of his nature. He becomes, in fact, an agent of nature. Man's mastery of nature turns out in the end to be nature's mastery of man. See what just happened there? That's really cool. We become creatures like animals. We have no transcendent capacity to know anything anymore. We can only know through sensory perception, a Kantian phrase. We can only know through sensory perception. Really? I mean, how many things do we know? I mean, you can't do historical knowledge that way. I can't believe in anything past, you know, that happens once and that's it. There's only been one Revolutionary War. I can't, how do I know for sure the Revolutionary War happened? You know? You off you go. It's amazing how recently you know, archaeology has been so important to Christians. Now, I love archaeology. And by the way, if you've been in, in the, the apologetics thing that we did, there's actually zero archaeological evidence which, which uh, speaks against the, the, uh, the, the inerrancy of the scripture. Not one. And I can give you, there's a, you can go there yourself. Go, go remember the, uh, the PowerPoint that I gave you there? It's all in there. You want to watch that PowerPoint if you want to see that. But we want archaeology, why? Because we're looking for something evidentialist, material, empirical. As if we don't, if we don't have it, we can't believe in God, or we can't believe in the Bible. See, that, that's, that's pretty arrogant, isn't it? That we can't believe the stories passed down over generations, that there isn't historical data, of, there's, a, there's a historical way to know something, and not just a, 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 a spiritual... And so here's the way that one of the greatest philosophers that's lived in our lifetime, Alvin Plantinga, um, interestingly, some of you know Sam Newlands. Sam Newlands went uh, to Notre Dame and is replacing him, basically, which is pretty big shoes to fill, if I'm, if I'm clear on that. Um, I, I'm sure he would say, no way I'm replacing him. That's not his point. But, but he's, he's up there in that world. But the point is, this is an amazing philosopher. And here, here's the way, and he was here about 10 years ago, and I went to the conference, and this is coming out of his handout that he gave. And, um, and here's the way he puts it. So would someone read that so you, so you don't get tired of my voice too bad? Does the scientific, let's read that. Does the scientific theory of evolution include not merely the idea that the living world has been produced by a process in which natural selection is the chief mechanism but the vastly more ambitious idea that this process has been unsupervised, unplanned, unintended by God or any other intelligent agent, that hardly seems to be an appropriate part of an empirical scientific theory, 
it looks instead like a metaphysical or theological add-on. Bam. Bam. He's just calling the bluff. And we need to do it too. Say, whoa. I mean, that's a metaphysical. You know what metaphysical means? Uh, Above, transcendent to physical. That's a metaphysical statement. What right does a guy trained in, in natural science have to make any metaphysical claim? And I'm going to say the same thing to you about me. What right do, does a man who's been trained in metaphysical science, theology, etc., what right do I have, acting out of my office as a pastor, have to say anything about the physical sciences? I'm just going to say I'm agnostic. Fred, Jim, you guys are, tell me what I, what I should know about natural science. I mean, I can do it at a very rudimentary level, like you can do it at a rudimentary level on the metaphysical side. I can do a little science here and there. I can do a little re- reproducible data stuff, you know. But, but for the most part, you know, it's just, just it's absurd. And that's the point, though. Post-enlightenment, the arrogance of natural science usurped the idea that there's even such a thing as metaphysics. And, and that's what he's saying. It's a, it's, so here it is. If you confuse Darwinism with unguided Darwinism, you will see science and faith and God in conflict. But if you distinguish Darwinism from unguided Darwinism, you will see that faith in God in conflict only with the nothing buttery scientism that is inherent to unguided Darwinism. And so the real question is which metaphysical system makes most sense, the system we call faith in God or the system we call faith in nothing buttery scientism? Back then to the two questions that I posed in the beginning of the discussion. This is me talking here. And I get into the whole windows of transcendence, et cetera, et cetera, um, I'm going to just skip over that. And so, at the end of the day, we're left with, I think, uh, if you understand what, what uh, Planning has just said, we're left with, okay, I believe in science, but I believe that it's, it's limited. That there is a kind of knowledge that we can gain by what? Faith. And faith isn't a wish. It's not a myth. And it's not unreasonable. It's based on observation. It's reasonable. It's based on reason. But you're not going to put it in a test tube. And so it's reasonable for me to believe in love. I see the power of love. It's reasonable for me to believe in the inherent worth of a human being. I mean, we'll waste millions of dollars to save a little old lady under a tree in Africa. Why? Because we just know there's worth in this human being. We know that. And we prove we know it by the way we're willing to spend gobs of money to save her. Rightly so. You know? I mean, you know, there's soldiers out there risking, you know, 15 people's lives to get one. There's nothing in Darwinism that explains that. But we're doing So this is the kind of thing you do. I have about five minutes. Anyone just ask a question real quick, and I'm going to point out what's next. Yeah. I have uh, an argument from my uh, rationalist friends. So this um, quote from Plantigan is is somewhat of a straw man argument, uh, especially in their mind, because... They wouldn't say that their idea is as ambitious as saying that it's unsupervised, unintended by God, or mm-hmm. unintelligent. They would just simply say that I don't need to invoke any of the spiritual 
right. to explain anything I see in in nature. And I would agree with him. I have no problem with that. And Flanagan would. I don't think that's what Flanagan is saying. What Flanagan is saying... I, I, I disagree. I think he's saying that it's an ambitious idea. I think it's ascribing to the rationalist this notion that... Uh, the atheistic rationalist. Yes, the, the, the atheist is, yeah, the rationalists that put up the billboards and uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I just think that that's in some sense an unfair characterization. No, I don't, I don't think it is, okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll debate you a little bit on it and I don't think, I think he would, I'm sure, having heard, what he would say is, is to, to the, what you just said, your rationalist said, he'd say, of course, you don't have to be a Christian, you don't have to be a theist to be a good scientist. Um, he would he would totally agree with that, and, and we should as Christians as well. Also, who has this ambitious idea? Then? The ambitious idea he's talking about, Fred, is the ambitious idea that you can you can you can um, you can assert the presupposition, if you will, that because of Darwinism, there is no God. That's all he's saying. He's saying no. That is a late. That is a that is a metaphysical statement. God is a metaphysical concept. Right, but but nobody believes that. Oh, I think nobody that's right. Atheists well, he's, if he's if he's thoughtfully would, but a lot of people do. A lot of people do it by virtue of. In fact, I heard it coming out here. Why are, why is there conflict between faith and reason? I mean, I, I would say it's probably the number one answer I'm going to hear is well, evolution has disproved God somehow. Now, I'm not saying a, a thoughtful person can say that, but what we're saying here is that there are people who will say that because of evolution, it disproves that God made the world. But I think what gets under tucked into that is God made the world in a, a period of six days, let's say. Or God, and therefore, since the Bible teaches, and this is where I'm going next, Fred, since the Bible teaches that God made all things in the period of six days, and since evolution has disproved a young earth theory, or evolution has disproved a, a, a six-day creation event, therefore, the Bible's wrong, God's wrong, it's all wrong. That's exactly what I've heard. Uh, uh, what's his name, Harris, say, you know, in his in his atheist stuff. So that's how they get there. That's all I'm saying. But no, I think you're right. I think any planet would be the first to concede what you just said that your rationalist friend said. Say, sure, sure, absolutely. But he's he's just dressing the person that says the therefore, which is a faith assumption. The therefore, because evolution is true, God doesn't exist. And, it, and again, you tuck in there all this assumption about what the Bible teaches that therefore disproves the Bible. Right. I, I guess my point is is that they would claim that their more thoughtful statement is just as powerful as saying that evolution disproves God. That's fine. I mean, that's not what he's arguing against. That's what I'm trying to say. What he's trying to say is it's a... I mean, that's the last time I say it. I just, he is only directing his point against the notion that there is a conflict between Darwinism and theism. That's all he's doing. That's all he's doing. Well, let's move on. We can talk some more. Thank you, though. That was good, and I think it was a good clarification regardless. Um, just a couple of minutes here. This is where I would love to spend more time. I've done it in other contexts. But there is a big elephant in the room here, and we haven't talked about it at all. And that is, the, how do we then read Genesis? And, and regardless of what you believe about re- evolution, young earth, old earth, again, 
I'm agnostic about all that as out of my office. I mean, I have my own personal views, but I'm pretty agnostic about it. As, as your pastor, if you come to me and say, do you believe in evolution? I'm going to say, look, I have no authority and no training to tell you what I believe. If you're asking the office of pastor, that's how, I, I don't read that book very often. I read another book of Revelation called Scripture. But, but do you think evolution is, is uh, inconsistent with Scripture? I'm going to say there's nothing I know about evolution that's inconsistent with Scripture. Does Scripture therefore teach evolution? I'm going to say, I have no idea whether it teaches evolution. There's nothing in Scripture that necessarily needs to teach evolution. Could the Scripture mean that, could this, is there any way to read Genesis, though, where it's not a literal six-day creation? Is there any way to read Genesis orthodoxly where there's not a young earth? I'm going to say, absolutely. In fact, why don't you go read Augustine? Because he knew Hebrew. He knew some words that I'm going to talk about here with you. Let me just, this gets so basic, I realize, but, but before we even go here, let me remind you, what is the inspired word of God? What is it? Anybody know? Is it English? Is it your Bible? No, that's just a translation of the inspired word of God. What is? Hebrew, Greek, Little Aramaic. Okay? Now, that means when you really get into these controversies, we got to go back because you know and I know that Matthew, that Moses wasn't writing English here. And you know and I know, like, like you heard the other day somewhere here, I can't remember how, but, but you know, some languages have uh, parsed things out more than other languages. Like English has a word for love, one. Greek has four words for love. And they're going to differentiate this love, this love, this love, and this love. Now, Hebrew is like this. We have things like the word age. We have things like the word a long period of time or whatever. Hebrew, the word yom, Hebrew for day, even in Genesis 1 is used three different ways. It's used to describe, you could read it, if you even read it literally, it's used to describe 24 hours. It's used to describe half days, as in a day versus a night. Same word. And it's also used to, to describe a age, a kind of a, a time period, for a time, for a day. So, for instance, if, you, if I said something like the great day of the Lord, which is used often in Scripture, what do you think is being saying there? Do you think that they're talking about, oh, from sunup to sundown, there is this really big time for God? Or are they saying, for 24 hours, that battle lasted? That's usually when they talk about the day of the Lord, they're talking about a great battle. No, usually in the scripture, if you hear the great day of the Lord, it's often in the context of battle. And often it's the context where it's talking about the, the great victory. That was the day. You know, the day of the Lord where he manifest his power over his enemy. And it could have lasted for years. The day of the Lord. So there's just a clue how many different ways, and I put that in there. We're not going to do it. Here's another clue how to read it, and so that's just one. Here's another clue. When we read uh, the Bible, we want to understand, again, what is this book about? And I think almost anyone from, would agree that what this book about is about is the, is the covenant. So what you have is the, the way covenants were written in the ancient Near East. And, and I'm not making this up. If you turn to page four, I'm going to illustrate it to you. This is the way, a if you were to enter a contract with a king, 
suzerain vassal relationship, then you would it would look like this. It would start out with a preamble. You know, that is where the treaty maker, in this case the king, is named in a way to motivate respect and loyalty. It's usually a I am kind of statement. And by the way, the book of Deuteronomy is the second, what is Deuteronomy? The second law. The renewal of the law, the old law. So you have the first law, or you have the same law, but the first presentation of law is from Genesis to Exodus, and then Deuteronomy is a renewal of that law a little later in history. And it's very clearly put into the, 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 uh, the covenant treaty format. So here it is. It starts with a preamble. Who is this great king? Why should you be loyal to him? Name him, in other words. And then historical prologue. You have the preamble, naming the, the king. He's king over Assyria. He's, and usually that's exactly what he is. Who is this king? Well, this is the king over Assyria. And his lands extend from here to here to here to here to here. That's, that's the way that a preamble would look. And, he's, and then you'd say, oh, what has he done that makes him worthy for me to follow? And that would be what's called the historical prologue. Or preamp, a prologue. That would be a great history of the his, of the of a survey of his kingdom and what he has done. It would talk about his great battles. It would talk about you know these great accomplishments and and all that he's acquired in wealth and all of this stuff. And then you had the requisites. Okay, so here are the terms. Uh, the rent is going to be two thousand a month. All right. And what I expect you to do with this and now I'm sounding like what a mortgage or a rental statement. It's a treaty. It's a covenant. And it would give you, here's what you're supposed to do. If you want to be in my kingdom, if you want to live in my house, here's the deal. you got to pay $2,000, you got to take care of the grass, you got to blah, 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 blah. And that's what, it, that's what would be next in every one of these ancient treaties. <coughs> Followed by the uh, covenant sanctions. If you don't do it, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to get kicked out of the house. All right, and then you go into the uh, instructions concerning the covenant renewal. Every year, in order for you to remember this, we're going to renew this contract. So there's going to be a little ceremony. There's going to be a place where the contract is is saved, and that was, of course, the holy of holies in the in the in the uh, you know the the chest. And there's going to be a great moment where we're going to constantly go back and renew this covenant with each other, because we don't want your generations to forget it. And then there's going to be the covenant oath ceremony exactly where there be vow taking, where, where the parties would take vows. Now, this is very important because if you read your Bible in Genesis and Exodus, what you find is exactly what I just showed you in Deuteronomy is exactly the way that Genesis 1 through Exodus 20 is written. All about God getting them to Sinai. Okay? And so... I say that right here. I won't go through it, but here's the gist of it. Genesis 1 through 2, verse 4. It's all poetry and, and poetic. God. In the beginning was God. And what you have is day frame 1, who has a Lord, and day frame 4. Follow this? Day frame 2, his, that day's Lord is in day 4, 5. Day frame three, that day's Lord is day frame six. Have you ever noticed how moons and stars and bugs and things like that are, are given personifications, like they rule over the skies? They're all kingdom language. 
And then you get to day frame seven. What happens? If you need to leave, you can leave. But I'm just going to at least finish this. But I do want to respect the fact that you might need to leave. Day frame seven, what happens? Are there two? Is there a day and then a, and a king there? Uh-oh. What do we got? We got this one day, and it skips all the spheres or kingdoms. It skips one, two, three spheres. It just names a king. And this king is sitting in session, seated. Sabbath, seated. Rest, not resting, napping. He's in session. And what is it being said? There's this great crescendo where you go day one, day four, day two, day five, day three, day six. You got day kingdom spheres, kingdom rulers, kingdom spheres, kingdom rulers, kingdom spheres, kingdom rulers, all these kings over all these spheres. And then you go to day seven. There is no sphere because this king is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. You want to know this God? He's the God that made it all. And he's Lord over all these other kingdoms and all these other kings. Then you start in chapter 2, verse 5. There's a Hebrew phrase, Ola Taladot. These are the histories of. Right out of the covenant. These are the histories of. Sometimes it's translated, these are the generations of. And you've got these 10 histories that go all the way through up to Exodus. They're the histories of those who are of the covenant, and they are the histories, five, of those who are of, of the, of the out, outside the covenant. Both under the lordship of God, notice. Cain's line and Seth's line. Seth's line's going to get you up through all the way to Joseph. Cain's line's going to get you through those other nations. Canaanites. People like that. Ten histories all with a historical prologue purpose, which are going to get you into the great new creation. So what is Moses doing? He's writing about creation in order to help the people understand why they would be loyal to a God that would see the relevance of their new creation passing through the waters of the Red Sea into salvation, a new life. He wanted to frame the whole salvation story of God in the creation story as a new creation event. Now, why hasn't that been talked about under Scope's trial? Why are we talking about this day as if that's the big... That's boring. If you start hearing about this six-day creation debate, just start yawning, man, because there's something much bigger going on than how long did it take God to create the world. That is so elementary comparatively. You see? So that's the kind of way that we would go here. And I wish I had the time to go through the rest of all this. Um, but you will have the time, so take it and enjoy it. Do you have any, anybody want to just say, explain something you just said? Again, if you need to leave, you can leave it. I want to give you a chance to respond. Yeah. I just have a question about this idea of the creation, or the, the historical prologue to this covenantal opening that we see in the Bible as spanning across the binding, so to speak, from Genesis to Exodus. And did Moses envision... Genesis and Exodus as sort of one yeah. entity that we're dividing up into two, and if so, like how did that division mm -hmm. kind of happen? Well, that's a good question. Yes, I do think that, that there's one story there, and it really neatly, with following this this covenantal framework, gets you to the Exodus, and then the the, the climax being this covenant ceremony that you see at Sinai. I mean, the end of the covenants when they all take the vow. 
Remember that? Um, and you see the same pattern, by the way, with the Abrahamic stories. It's amazing, you know. Um, so I don't know, in terms of the division of the books, I mean, you can certainly see that part one is sort of the preamble and the history leading up to then the great climax, the final history of the salvation of Israel vis-a-vis, uh, you know, the Exodus. But I, I don't that's an interesting question. I can't remember. I'm sure it's come up somewhere. Other questions? Does this help you a little bit to think, wow. I mean, my purpose for you is to go right back to this. It's sad to me that this issue of, I have another whole section in here, and you can read it, how another sort of aha moment for you will be to see that when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you really are reading, and you'll, you'll see it in here. I give you a lot of biblical evidence. You can go look it up yourself if you're one of these guys like me that gets real anal about this, and I do. I, I get real anal. I just thousands of pages when I get into it. And, and you can go and look at it. And there it is. I mean, there's this, there's this temple priestly language everywhere. I mean, I, I mean, some of you heard me say that. I just have, there, it's all here, but just example. I mean, is it significant that Adam and Eve were, were, were kicked out of, of Eden on the east side? And is it significant that the temple, the Mosaic temple, that the door to the temple was always as part of the law on the east side? Is it significant that we're, it's portrayed that the cherub, that the, the cherub and the seraphim with the swords, the flaming swords, the angels with the flaming swords, are fencing the table, if you will, fencing at a cane out, an Adam and Eve out, I mean? And if that same image is found on the curtain that enters you into the Holy of Holies in the temple? Isn't it interesting that the whole story of, of Genesis starts with the great Shekinah cloud, glory cloud of the Holy Spirit, hovering literally as the image of a dove, hovering over the, the, the chaos? That the beginning of the story starts with the Shekinah glory of God coming down upon the nothingness and voidness? <laughs> and that that's always the way the temple is formed? It's formed by the hovering of the Holy Spirit that descends into the temple? Is it curious that when Jesus was baptized and inaugurated in his ministry that the same hovering image is given as it comes down upon Christ, whose thesis John gave you was Christ is the temple of God? I mean, I could just go on and on and on with this stuff. Where the heck was the church when we were letting our Bible get robbed into scientism. And that's sort of what, that's stuff that gets me a little upset. You know, where were we? Why were we reading this? Because it's all right there. And the church historically was reading it. And this is exactly what happens when the church has as its obsession culture wars and not being good exegetes of scripture and just letting it be what it is. Well, I'll stop. Anything else? Isn't like part of science special revelation, or not special, but general revelation, like this whole idea that we seek like evidence-based medicine. You're not going to treat a patient with something that right. hasn't been shown in trials and back to Good. I hope, you think, I hope you treat that way with me, too, if I remember coming to you. <laughs> it's good. Like if, like, if part of science is, is seeking order, like, and that's part of the human yes. nature, then that's part of general revelation. So, like, yes. instead of seeing science so much in conflict, like... It's part of how we were made to seek order. So yeah. part of seeking evidence is how you have order. And 
part of why like medicine now is effective. But but but, so but we seek that with with from the we don't assume the Cartesian revolution that we if we can't derive something from ourselves that it doesn't exist. So yes, everything you said is true. Have dominion, you know, be fruitful and multiply, which is some really priestly language, by the way, as, as well. You'll see that language in all the beatit- uh, in all the benedictions, uh, temple benedictions. But I won't go there. So, so, but the problem you see was while it is entirely reasonable to to go from creation and say there is a lot of evidence that supports the existence of God. I don't know if you were here, but when we talked about that in our one of our first lessons. We talked about the reasons to believe in God and all this stuff. So that's fine. And we would say that faith is always reasonable. It's not anti-reason. So I'm not going there either. But but what happened to the fall was in some ways paramount to the Cartesian like what happened there in the Enlightenment is when, when man made themselves the arbiter of what is that we have to start from the vantage point of us to discern that versus revelation coming down to us, that was what sin was. So, yeah, I think we were all made, uh, you know, the evidentialistic method, if you will, is a valid method in terms of understanding natural science. But I don't think natural science can do much more than suggest that there is a God, but always that comes with a faith assumption that is a gift of God. We think faith is a gift. And my paradigm goes from me-centered to God-centered. Or in the pre-modern sense, we believe in a, a world with windows, not a world without windows. So this God is breaking into our world through revelatory acts like redemption and creation. And we can respond to that with, with belief, reasonably. So, I mean, I really feel personally that I could... To me, you know, when I start doubting the existence of God, and to me, that's where all the fight is. Once I get to God, the Bible makes sense. But every once in a while, I got to go back and figure out if I really believe God, because it's just so spectacular, it's so ridiculous of a claim when you stop to think about it. <laughs> There's a God like this. You just kind of go, really? Come on, am I crazy? And I get out in nature usually. I can't go to the Bible to find that. I go to nature, and then it just says, "This is—it's more ridiculous to think that human beings can be this beautiful." And they existed out of chance or mutations or any of this. There's got to be a designer to make a, the beautifulness of humanity. And there's got to be a designer to make the beautifulness of nature. You know how it goes. So that's reasonable. So I don't know if I've answered your question or not. Have I? Yeah. The part about that it's not, yeah. Yeah. General revelation part of that is you're saying like human seeking order and having an evidence Oh, we're, we're ordered to do that. Like not, it's when you say that, that if I have no evidence for something, then which faith requires? It's, it's, the, it's, it's not even that we don't have any evidence. We have evidence to support and believe in God. It's <coughs> if we limit what we can know based upon what we can prove evidentially or by empirically reproducible data, etc. Because what you've done is you've made me, in other words, anything I can know can only be as big as me. That, that's, that's what I think, and that gets back to Planning. That's Planning's point. That, that how atrocious is that? That the only thing I can believe and know is is contained to my brain and contained in my existence, and that's the problem, you know. That I think that, that you see in Adam when he made himself the arbiter of truth and, and of knowledge of good and evil. It's a good question. 
Anything else? Yeah, you can leave if you need to. I'm, I'm set, I'll sit here all night with you if you want, but you need to leave. You need to leave. Go. Don't feel bad about it. But this is fun. You want to? Yeah. I have one comment, Preston. I'm listening carefully to what you're talking about in terms of you're not sort of stepping out of your role, your office. Make commentary upon, let's say, scientific fact. But what you have to understand is that there is, stated this way, there's no real scientific fact per se. And as you what, do what, science, what do you mean by that? Sorry. Let me expand upon it. As you do science, decade after decade, you realize the amount of bias. Mm. Mm. The amount of bias that enters into the way in which certain studies are designed, the ways the data yeah. is interpreted. Mm -hmm. And so part of my concern is that by being unwilling to engage and ask the tough question of the yeah. scientists, right. you're accepting their statement right. as fact that you can't really refute. That's right, I agree. And then somehow I have to I have to be able to take my theological belief and make it merge or converge with what they and you don't think I'm saying that to you I want to make sure you're not because, no, absolutely because not. the key question you always need to ask is what are the biases and assumptions built into your hypothesis that's right okay? mm -hmm. because unless you ask that as a sort of a layman you'll, you'll, you'll always come up against you'll always be um, acquiescing Mm -hmm. To the expert, because they're the they're the ones that know this area and state it unequivocally as fact. Right. And so I just want to make sure that you understand that the dirty secret when you listen to the hood, the scientific work, the amount of bias that goes into Absolutely. the work and the way it's reported. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry if you didn't hear that, but that's exactly the point. They're both. I said they're both fallible. They're both fallible over and over. They're both fallible. Infallible. But, in, but fallible. And that's, that's to me, again, back to that uh, statement by Planning, that's what's so atrocious, yeah. is that we live in an era that, that like, that, that's what Newbegin was pointing out, that who said that's a fact? I mean, he's making the same point you're making. Why is that necessarily a fact? And why is it not necessarily a fact that this is true, even if you can't put it in the test tubes? And that's exactly right, which is exactly why humility is needed on both sides, which is, again, what I was emphasizing. And, and why... I, as a Christian, I mean, we believe that if, if God doesn't give me a rebirth, I have a moral bias against God. So this is true for an unchristian church member as it is true for a, an unchristian, you know, scientist, natural scientist. I mean, I even take issue, I mean, I remember uh, uh, Walter Storff, Nicholas Walter Storff, some of you know him, I took his class here in philosophy, and, and um, I mean, he, you know, he was always... You know, he wouldn't even use the word science in his class. He always wanted to use Latin or scientia. And the reason he said that was because he, because he was trying to make the case that, that modern natural science, as in post-enlightenment natural science, was not the mother of science, that it was never the ultimate science. And, that, and then he was trying to make the case that the, the sort of arrogance that you're, you're acknowledging, where this one way of knowing, reading one book of Revelation, is, is used to usurp all other ways of knowing what we call... It's, it's the clash between physics and metaphysics. You know, and physics don't... You know, physicists or physics... You know, physics, natural scientists, you know, are having a problem with the metaphysics. Oh, you can't really know anything you're knowing. And I hear that bias all the time. People have a very low view of philosophy right now. I mean, I was talking to my kids, and I don't want to get... I don't even believe in philosophy. I mean, literally, I don't want to... I don't even believe it. I think it's just... 
bogus. Sit around asking, do I exist? You know, and I can appreciate some of it. <laughs> but you see, that's, so I think you're right. Okay. It's a very good point, and I'm glad you, you certainly clarified that. All right, well, we can go home. I, I mean, thank you for hanging in there as long as you have. Thanks, Preston. Yeah. Thank you.